I invite you uh, to turn uh, in the scriptures this morning to uh, Exodus chapter 24. We'll be looking at two passages of scripture, but the first one is the 24th chapter of Exodus. You know, good leaders are difficult to find. Uh, let me share with you uh, several excerpts from actual military fitness reports. Uh, taken, this is Veterans Weekend, uh, taken from the files of the British Royal Navy and Marine Corps. These are from some years ago now. Uh, here are some of the evaluations. Here's one. Uh, his men would follow him anywhere, but only out of curiosity. Or this one, he would be out of his depth in a puddle. Or this one, he is technically sound, but socially impossible. Uh, the reviews get worse from there. Here's another one. This man is depriving a village somewhere of its idiot. Uh, this one, this officer is really not so much of a has-been, but more of a definitely won't be. Another one, this young man has delusions of adequacy. I like this one. This uh, man sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. And then one more. On my last report, I said he had reached rock bottom. He has since begun to dig. Good leaders are hard to find. Those of you that are in the business world know good employees also are hard to find. But in our text this morning, as we've been looking, beginning to look at the life and career of Joshua, what we discover not just in Joshua, but throughout the scripture, is God is in the business, if we belong to him, of raising up people who are effective, people who make a difference, who make a mark, uh, folks who live in victory, folks who live in power, not victory of one's own making, not one's power that we generate ourselves, but in the victory that God supplies and in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so if you are a Christian, God calls you to effectiveness. He calls you to effectiveness in uh, every area of your life. Uh, if you're a Christian, he desires you to be effective in your home to be effective in your community with regard to your work, your business, with regard to the things of the Lord, uh, the work of the church. And, and the teaching of Scripture is God has, a, if you are a believer, God has a ministry for each one of you, no matter what your education, no matter what your income, no matter what your job, your background, your family circumstances, none of that matters. God has a place of effective ministry and service for you, but it's based on a relationship, a living, growing relationship with Christ, the Savior and Lord. Joshua was effective. Uh, he was effective. He led the people into the promised land, accomplished great victories. But as we're going to discover in these introductory messages before we ever get to uh, Joshua 1.1, there are some lessons that Joshua learned over the years before he ever became the leader. There are some things God put into his life. There, there's some things that Joshua learned and he internalized and it made a difference in the years that followed. 
Last week as we began our study, we looked at Exodus 17 where Joshua is at a place called Rephidim and there he learns the importance of prayer. And, and that's really probably too weak of a way to put it. He learned that prayer was absolutely vital. Prayer was absolutely necessary. Joshua is engaged in battle, but he wins the battle because, as he says at the end, because of the Lord our banner. It's because we rallied in prayer around him that we won the victory. And so Joshua learns, the very first lesson he learns after crossing the Red Sea, before they ever get to the land 40 years later, the lesson he learns is prayer is indispensable. It is vital. You cannot serve the Lord in victory and power without calling upon his resources and trusting in his name and in his grace. Well, this morning I want us to look at incidents number two and three. There are seven of them that precede Joshua 1.1, but I want to take two and three together this morning. And so the first one is in Exodus chapter 24. Uh, the setting is the people are at Mount Sinai. And uh, God is giving his holy law. You find the beginnings of that in Exodus chapter 19. And as you read along, you come into chapter 20, you find the Ten Commandments laid out, and you go through chapter 21, 22, 23. And at the end of chapter 23, after giving extensively his law in many different um, particulars of life, the Lord makes this promise at the end of Exodus 23. Uh, he says, I will drive out the enemy and give you the land of promise if you keep my commandments. Well, so the people hear that and notice how they respond. Exodus 24, uh, look at verse 3. So God has made this promise. If you keep my commandments, I'll lead you into the land. I'll drive out the enemy. I'll give you the inheritance I promised to Abraham. And the people said in 24, verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Talk about naivete. Everything God says, count on it. We'll obey it all. Mark it down, Moses. Mark it down, Joshua. Well, there's no way sinners can keep that kind of a pledge. Uh, you know you've resolved in your life to do better, to do differently. Not going to fall into that trap again. What happens, we do. And you read the history in the Old Testament, and what did they do? They disobeyed God. Uh, they wandered from his ways. Uh, they turned their backs on him. They disobeyed in various ways. They dishonored the Lord. The, their promise they made in verse 3, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. They didn't keep it. So what happens when you don't keep it? What happens when the pledge is broken? What happens to you and me? When we don't live up to what we know God has called us to do. Well, what we know, first of all, is that as sinners, we can't come into the presence of a holy God. Isaiah the prophet says, your sins have separated between you and your God so that he will not listen to you. He will not hear your prayers. And so we as sinners, in and of ourselves, cannot come into God's presence. In fact, what's significant when you read the Exodus account, uh, Mount Sinai was fenced off with barriers, the book of Exodus tells us, so that no one could even come up and get near the mountain. So no one could even touch the mountain. It was fenced off so animals couldn't even touch it. And if an animal touched the mountain, it was to be killed instantly, the book of Exodus says. And so God is holy. His holiness is a burning fire that consumes all iniquity. But guess what? God provides a way for us as sinners 
to actually enter his presence, be restored to him, to fellowship with him. There is a way of forgiveness. There is a way of fellowship, and it is found in the gospel. I want you to notice very significantly, verse 3, everything God says we're going to do it. What does verse 4 say? The next morning Moses built an altar. What's an altar for? An altar's for sin. I mean, Moses gets up the next day and knows what's going to happen with the people. God knows what happens in our lives. Yes, I'm going to follow you, Lord, and then we don't. What's the provision for that? There is an altar that is built. You notice in verse 4. And then in verse 5, sacrifices are offered. And it mentions several of them. It mentions the burnt offerings, the peace offerings offered to the Lord. And then after the sacrifices are offered, the blood is taken... And the blood is applied. And you notice the blood was divided into two, the scripture says, in verse 6. Moses took half of the blood and threw it against the altar, the Bible says. And then in verse 8, he took the other half and he cast it over the people. The crowd was there. He, in some way, sprinkled it out across that great crowd that was gathered there at Mount Sinai. And what we see here is a picture of the gospel. We see here a picture of how one comes into a right relationship with God. It's not based on, yes, Lord, I'm going to keep it all. Trust me, I'll do it. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our efforts. It's all of grace. And you notice here, it's based upon the sacrifice of another. An innocent sacrifice for sin. Now, you come to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10... And uh, the book of Hebrews makes clear that the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament of calves and bulls and oxen and goats, whatever it might be, they didn't cleanse in and of themselves. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. But they were accepted by God. They were efficacious because they all pointed ahead to, they were a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ upon the altar of the cross. And because they pointed ahead to that, as you by faith made that sacrifice, you were looking ahead by faith to God's full and final provision for all of sin. And so here they are at Mount Sinai. Yes, we're going to keep the law. They don't. There's an altar. Sacrifices are made. The people are sprinkled with the blood of the innocent sacrifice. And you notice in verse 9, and this is where I want to pick up the reading, it begins with the word, then. Then. On the basis of sacrifice, on the basis of the blood that was shed for sin, the people are invited in the presence of their leaders, in the person of their leaders, into the very presence of God. And I want to pick up the reading with verse 9. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, went up Mount Sinai. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. 
So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You have here in this passage one of the most amazing experiences anywhere in the Old Testament. And from what Joshua experienced, the elders were there too. There were 70 of them. There was Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Joshua, 70 elders. They experienced many of these same things, of course, as well. But what I want to submit to you is from this passage... There are three significant elements in this text uh, that are essential for you and me if we would serve God with effectiveness, with victory, with power. And I want you to notice them one by one. You notice, first of all, that Joshua and the others, of course, experience the majesty of God. Moses doesn't describe in detail what this experience was other than seems like verse 10 there was a throne set up and there was a pavement clear as crystal upon which this magnificent throne of God sat. We can get some idea of what this vision probably was if you go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel, you remember, was by the river in captivity in Babylon, and he had this vision of the glory of God, a great throne, chariot throne, lightning, fire, cherubim, seraphim, a great crystal sea upon which the throne was set. Ezekiel's vision is undoubtedly very much what Moses saw. You go to the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 4, John has a vision of the throne of God there upon that crystal sea and the elders bowing down and the angelic hosts and all the glory and majesty that John describes. This is what Joshua experienced, what Ezekiel did, what John describes in Revelation chapter 4. And regardless of what the specifics were in this vision, because Moses just touches on it, he doesn't give us any detail about it, is... Joshua came to understand he served a great and awesome God. He came to understand that this great and awesome God was the one who was leading the people. This great and awesome God had called them to salvation. This great and awesome God was going to lead them all the way to the land of promise. And this experience for Joshua, understanding something of the majesty and the glory and the power and awesomeness of God, shaped his entire life. We see that 40 years later, or a few years later, before they went into the promised land uh, after 40 years. Remember, as they left Mount Sinai, the people came to the southern border of the land of promise. And the idea was broached, why don't we send a little exploratory party into the land? Let's send in 12 spies, one from each tribe. And so you remember the story, Joshua was one of the 12 spies that went in. And when they came back after 40 days spying out the land, they gave their report to the congregational business meeting. 
And you remember what they said. The, the majority report was, this land is fantastic. The resources here are abundant. We can't believe it, how magnificent this land is. It's too bad we can't take it. Because they said, we were there and we saw giants in the land. I mean, height-wise, we were like grasshoppers compared to them. What chance do we have? And plus, we saw fortified cities all over the place, massive walls, strong armies. God made a mistake when he led us here. We can't go into the land. Remember Joshua said, oh yes, but we can. God has promised us the land. He will see us through. He will bring us into the place he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so while the majority said we can't do it, Joshua his vision of God, his understanding of who God is, said, we can take it. Let's move ahead. And so, of course, you recall 40 years later, when they crossed the Jordan River, Moses had died now under Joshua. There's Jericho, the great fortress city guarding the way into the entire land. Joshua didn't say, oh, I guess we can't do it. We should never have crossed the Jordan River. It's like, let's march around for seven days. God will bring down the walls. He'll give us victory. Joshua experienced the majesty and power of God and it impacted every decision he made in the years that followed. Here's the question for you, how big is your God? What is it that you face? What are the circumstances in front of you? Is God big enough or is he not? Robert Dick Wilson, old-time Presbyterian, um, great uh, conservative Old Testament Bible scholar of 100 years ago. Uh, he taught at Princeton Seminary from uh, 1900 to 1929. And of course, uh, in those almost 30 years, he had a lot of students that went through his classes, went on into pastoral ministry, other things. And whenever one of his former students would be invited back to Princeton to speak in chapel, he went once to hear them. If they came back other years, only came to hear them the first time. And here's what he said, as he would come back and slip into the back of Miller Chapel to hear one of his former students bring the message. He put it this way, he said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be like. Our vision of God makes all the difference. Think about the shepherd boy David. You know the story, David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. Okay, so here you have the military of Israel, well-trained, well-equipped, battle-hardened veterans. They didn't know what to do about Goliath. Oh, he's too big, too powerful, nothing we can do. The court of Saul the king, paralyzed with fear. What do we do? The giant's so large, we don't dare confront him. And then along comes David, shepherd boy. He had a sling, he had five stones. And what did David say? David was one of those big godders. Here's what he says in 1 Samuel 17. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And he marched out with his five smooth stones, with his slingshot, because he didn't measure how big Goliath was. That's what everybody else was doing. He measured how big God was. And so he entered into the field of battle and he slew the giant and he brought deliverance to Israel. Not because he was so great, because he was just a little shepherd boy, but because God is great and he understood that. He understood something of the majesty and power and glory of God. How big our God is will make a difference in our lives. 
Here's the second thing. Very interestingly, Joshua and the others enjoyed a meal with God in his presence. And so they had this awesome experience of this sapphire, crystal clear pavement, this massive glowing throne with lightning and the elders and angels and all the things that must have been part of this vision. And you notice what the scripture says. They were there, they saw it all, verse 11, but yet God did not lay his hand on any of them. How can you be in the presence of that kind of God and survive it? It's because of the sacrifice. It's because atonement was made. It's because blood was shed. It's because there was a way that was opened. And so here, after this massive experience, what did they do? They had a communion service there on the mountaintop. Now, what they ate, it doesn't say. Perhaps they brought uh, what was left from the fellowship offerings, took some of that up on the mountain with them, and they had a meal there in the presence of God. Maybe there were other provisions that they brought because they were up there, all of them, for a pretty long time. Maybe they brought bread. Maybe they brought wine, who was to say. But they ate in the presence of God. What does that imply? It implies relationship. It points to heart-to-heart fellowship. It points to acceptance. It points to oneness. Uh, Welcome. It's it's open arms of welcome. That's what eating together speaks of. Uh, You recall that marvelous promise in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Fellowship. And so here we see in this passage of Scripture, as well as in others, that the awesome glory, the God of glory, enters into a heart fellowship with us through the blood of Christ. That we are sinners, we fail, we fall short. God is majestic and holy beyond our comprehension. But yet he says, come into my house, sit down at the table. Let's visit together. Let's enjoy a meal together. This is a marvelous thing. We enter God's presence through the blood of Christ. 1 John 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so it is in that fellowship with the Lord that we find strength and victory. How how does that fellowship happen? Through prayer? Through the reading of Scripture? through gathering with other believers, we grow closer to the Lord. Our heart is open to Him. He welcomes us in. We learn more of Him, not more about Him, but we learn more of His character and His love and His mercy. That's why, for example, regularly participating at the Lord's table is important. Because what do we do? We eat and drink in the presence of God. The first Sunday of every month when we schedule communion. Communion is not just a memorial. It's not just symbolic. There is symbolism there, beautiful symbolism. But we believe as Lutherans, Christ is really present. And so in a unique way, when we come to communion, there is unique fellowship with God as we gather at his table. And what do I say at the end? That may you be strengthened and preserved in true faith unto everlasting life. There's something that happens when you're in the presence of Christ in a unique way. You think about at the end of time in heaven, Revelation 19. What are we going to do? Sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't miss that theme throughout all of Scripture. Fellowship with our Lord is in the context of eating and drinking. 
was at the beginning, it is at the very end of all things. And of course, daily, as we fellowship with the Lord, we feed on Him by faith. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. We are sustained. And as we fellowship with Him through devotional time, whatever it might be, as we enjoy a meal with God, if you can put it that way, we grow closer to Him and the fellowship becomes sweeter day by day. Well, then one more point I want you to see, and this is that Joshua was engaged in meditation on God. You notice what happens here. So they have this magnificent vision, all the elders do, the 70 plus of them that were there. Moses is there, Joshua is there. And after that magnificent vision, after they've all shared a meal together, eating and drinking in God's presence, Moses says to Joshua, the rest of you stay here. Joshua, you come with me, we're going higher. And so the two of them go up higher on the mountain. And what does this text say? They were together for six days, Moses and Joshua alone on the mountain. Wonder what they were doing during those six days. It doesn't say in the text, but I wonder what they were doing. Praying, fellowshipping, talking, meditating on what they had experienced. They're together for six days. And then on the seventh day, God says to Moses, leave Joshua by himself now. You're going to go on even higher onto the mountain. And so Moses goes higher on the mountain, and Joshua is by himself on Mount Sinai for 40 days. What do you think transpired during those 40 days when he was there? Seemingly what happened, based upon scriptures that follow up on Exodus 24... Seemingly what was kindled in his heart was a growing passion for God. A growing desire to be in his presence and to be in fellowship with him. And I want you to see this in Exodus 33. This is the second passage I want to look at very briefly. So after all this transpires, Joshua, Moses, all the elders, everybody comes down from Mount Sinai. And I want you to notice Exodus 33. And I want to start the reading in verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And I want you to see verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. That's significant. So the two of them would go out to the tent of meeting. The glory cloud would descend. And after a while, Moses would say, it's time for us to go back to the camp. And Joshua said, I'm not going back. Not now. Not yet. I can't pull myself away. Joshua was so overcome with the presence of God, spending time with God, that he reluctantly 
would leave the tent of meeting. It was a priority for him. The story is told of a, uh, of a seminar leader speaking to a group of business students. And uh, he was speaking to them. His topic was on time management. So he gave his lecture on the topic of time management. And when he was done, he said to them, okay, time for a quiz. And uh, he took out from under the table at the front of the room um, a wide mouth glass jar, gallon jar. And so he set that on the table, and then he produced about, um, about a dozen fist-sized rocks. And he took those rocks and he put them in carefully into the glass jar one by one until came up to the top of the jar, until you couldn't put any more inside. And he said to the class, is the jar full? And they all said, well, yes. And he said, really? And he reached under the table and took out a container of gravel. And he took the gravel and slowly poured it into that wide mouth jar. And as he poured it in, he'd shake it. So the gravel worked its way down among those larger rocks that were there. And eventually the gravel got up to the top of the jar. And he said to the class, is the jar full? Well, by this time, the class was kind of on to him. And one of the students in the class said, well, I don't think so. Maybe not. He said, good. And so he said, took a small bucket of sand out from under the table. And he poured the sand into the jar, did the same thing, shook the jar, let the sand work down among the big rocks and the gravel, and it was up to the top. And he said, is the jar full? And the class said, no. And he said, good. Took a pitcher of water out from under the table and slowly poured that into the jar and let it seep all the way in until the water was up to the top. And then he said, is the jar full? Yes, of course, the jar indeed was then full. And he said to the class, so what's the point of my illustration? And one of the business students who had taken this time management seminar said, well, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit something more into it. And he said to the student, you missed the whole point of the lecture. The point is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, they'll never fit at all. And the point, of course, had to do with time management, had to do with setting your priorities for the week, getting the important things, the big things done first. You understand the point for our text, I hope. What do we do with our lives? In the course of a week, we put gravel in the jar, we put sand in the jar, we put water in the jar. It's like, oh, but I got no room for the rocks now. We fill our lives with all kinds of other things. I'm too busy to pray. I got sand and gravel and water in here. I, got, I can't put the rock in. I have no time for devotional life. I can't serve in church. My schedule's all full. I got no time. There's no room. Well, I can't tithe my money either. I got no money left over. What we see in the life of Joshua is he put the rocks in the jar first. And because he put first things first, all the other things took their place. It's not that you never put sand in the jar or gravel or water or all the other things that are part of our lives, but you start with the big things. You prioritize your relationship with God. You put the large rocks in first and then fill in with everything else. 
And because that was Joshua's understanding, he was able to step out and live and serve with victory and power. He served a great and awesome God and had a heart fellowship with that creator and redeemer, his Lord. There's a, um, there's a wonderful story from the life of Gladys Aylward. Uh, if you've never read her story, it's one of those tremission, tremendous mission stories uh, you should read. She was a British uh, missionary in China, single lady, uh, in the years prior to uh, World War II. And uh, so the area where she served in, she worked with an orphanage. She worked with the China Inland Mission. And uh, the area she worked in in 1940, in the early years of World War II, the Japanese, who, as you may know, invaded China, uh, had invaded the area where she had served for some years. And so here she is, 38 years old. She's alone. Um, she's been wounded by a bullet in her back. And she has 100 orphans under her care. And so she knows she somehow has to reach free China, get out of the Japanese-dominated area. And so they headed into the mountains in an effort to cross over them and uh, get to uh, free China. Well, for about 12 days or so, she traveled with 100 orphans. Uh, they didn't have much food with them, limited supplies. Here are these 100 kids, they are tired, they are filthy, they're hungry. Finally, they crest the mountains, and then down below, they see the Yellow River, uh, the boundary between Japanese-occupied China and free China. And they knew if they could cross the Yellow River, they would make it into safety. And so as they looked down, they saw a village down there on the plain, about three miles from the river. And so Gladys said to the orphans, guess what? There's a village here. We'll go down to the village. The villagers, I'm sure, will help us. They'll give us food. They'll help us find a way to cross over to the other side of the river. And so she said, let's sing a song as we go down the mountainside. And so they sang all those hundred orphans together, of course, in Chinese. I am Jesus, little lamb, happy all the day I am, was what they sang. So they made their way down the mountain. They came to this village about three miles from the Yellow River. And as they went into the village, there was rubble and debris everywhere from Japanese bombing. And there was nobody there except for one old man. And she asked him, she said, where is everybody? And he said, well, the Japanese soldiers are coming. They've already started bombing the area. They're coming. So everybody's fled across the Yellow River. And he pointed out, he said, that's the way they went. There's this little road that goes down. There's the ferry crossing where they went, but they're all long gone. There are no boats. There is nobody else around. Everybody's fled. Well, Gladys didn't know what else to do except to take the hundred orphans down to the ferry crossing. And so she did. The river, mile wide. The current was rather swift. Uh, they sat there for three days. What would they do? They couldn't go back into the mountains. They couldn't go back to where they came from. And there were no boats, just as the old man had said. Nobody else around. Gladys was exhausted. She was overwhelmed. A hundred orphan children in her care. There was no hope of getting across. Well, at that point, a little 12-year-old orphan girl reminded Gladys of the story of Moses that she had taught them in the orphanage. And the little orphan said, Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea. Let's pray that God will part the waters so we can walk across. And Gladys looked at her and said, I'm not Moses. 
And the little girl said, of course you're not, but God is still God. Let's kneel down and pray. And so as they knelt down to pray, at that moment, a small uh, reconnaissance band of Chinese soldiers were on the same side of the Yellow River. They're watching for the Japanese coming to give report to the troops on the other side. And so they were scouting, and all of a sudden they heard this noise. And uh, so the officer of this little reconnaissance group got to the top of a little knoll. He took out his binoculars, and he couldn't believe what he saw. They're sitting on the banks of the Yellow River, a large group of children in a circle singing praises to God. And so he made his way with his men up to Gladys and said, what are you doing here? He said, this is a battlefield. He said, are you in charge of these children? And she said, yes, I am. We need to get across the river. And the officer said, you know what? I, I think I can get you a boat. And he said, it's small, it won't fit all of you in it at once, it'll take us three trips. And be warned, there are Japanese planes patrolling the skies. If they see a boat on the river, they'll strafe it with machine gun fire and you'll all be goners. Well, Gladys said, we need to make it safely across. And so the boat was procured, all the children and Gladys went across. And when it was all said and done, this uh, little 12-year-old orphan girl said to Gladys, she said, you know what, God could have parted the waters. But he knew we were too tired to walk any further, so he sent a boat instead. How big is your God? How big is your God? It makes all the... Are you a big Godder or a little Godder? Be thou my vision, the hymn says, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess to you that many times uh, you are rather small. We think of uh, the Israelites in David's day. They had a pretty puny God. Can't handle anybody even like Goliath. God's not big enough. So Lord, we think about life and the, the issues that rise against us. Sometimes very large ones, impossible ones. And the question that our text raises for us this morning is, but how big is your God? God can do anything, anything, anything. The little chorus says God can do anything but fail. And so, Lord, teach us what it is in life to fellowship with you so that we understand more of your heart, your power, your character, your will for us, the fact that you will never leave us or forsake us, that we can boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what anybody shall do unto me. And so, Lord, give us that vision that sustained Joshua so that when he crossed the Jordan River and there was Jericho in front of him, God was bigger than Jericho. The walls came a-tumbling down. And Joshua and the people advanced from victory to victory. So, Lord, teach us what it is to know you, to love you, to serve you, to fellowship with you, to grow in relationship with you. And then, Lord, as we turn all things to you in prayer, to find you strong and powerful in all the circumstances of our lives. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.